Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. In assessing popular music in the last half of the 20th century, rock music was a massive cultural phenomenon. Initially driven by baby boomers, rock grew bigger and stronger starting in the middle 1960s, eventually eclipsing all other genres. And central to this conquest was the electric guitar. That sound, with all its power and distortion and infinitely diverse tonalities, can still drive music fans into ecstasy. For many, the electric guitar is a symbol of rebellion and liberation. It was a new vehicle for freedom of expression, and it opened the doors to new types of creativity. And it was because of the electric guitar that rock went global. Its history is a complicated one, involving musicians, inventors, tinkerers, happy accidents, big multinational corporations, and lone wolves. Some names are well-known, while others, despite their contributions to the decades-long evolution of the instrument, languish in obscurity, known only to guitar geeks and obsessives. And while there have been many occasions where pundits have declared that rock, and by extension the tools to make this music, dead— the electric guitar has proven to be extremely adaptable and has, so far, been able to take on all comers, especially when placed in the hands of radicals and rule breakers. If a power chord played through a Marshall stack has ever given you the chills, then you're in the right place. This is the history of the electric guitar, part three. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, featuring John Frusciante conjuring up some ghostly bits using a 1958 Stratocaster. Lore has it that the house where the Chili Peppers recorded Blood Sugar Sex Magic was haunted, hence the spooky-sounding bits from John. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and here is a summary of where we are with this series. With parts one and two of these episodes on the history of the electric guitar, we looked at its origins, its evolution through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and the rise of popular manufacturers like Fender, Gibson, Gretsch, Epiphone, and Rickenbacker. We looked at the introduction of famous models like the Stratocaster, the Les Paul, and the Rickenbacker. But in many ways, that's just the beginning of the story. After the Beatles hit America in February 1964, everyone wanted to be in a guitar band. Demand for new instruments exploded. Meanwhile, those already playing electric guitars in a band found their currency and influence increasing. It was the beginning of the age of the guitar hero. And soon we'd be hearing about Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, and more. And when Bob Dylan started using an electric guitar in 1965, we entered a whole new phase of evolution. Yes, electric guitar technology had come of age, but they really weren't all that useful without amplifiers. And if we're going to tell the story of the electric guitar in the 1960s, 
we have to acknowledge the role of two British companies that made amps. The first is Vox, an amplifier company founded in 1957 with the distinctive diamond-shaped grill pattern. The most important model was the 30-watt Vox AC30, first introduced in 1959. Until Vox came along, the majority of electric guitarists were using amps built by Fender and a few other small American manufacturers. This meant, to a certain extent, that everyone had the same sort of guitar tones. The Vox AC30 changed all that because it was built differently. First, it used vacuum tubes. Secondly, its amplification circuitry was different, employing a second treble stage, something called the top boost circuit, and the result was a brighter, jangly sort of sound. Vox's first customers were the guys in Cliff Richard's band, The Shadows. Then came The Beatles, who had a deal that they would use only Vox amps on stage. And the Vox sound became the sound for pretty much all British invasion bands of the mid-1960s and beyond. Here's the most famous single chord played through a Vox AC30. It's John Lennon playing a Gibson J130E, an acoustic guitar with electric amplification, and George Harrison's 12-string Rickenbacker 360-12. Okay, let's hear that chord again. The only way to achieve that sound was with those guitars and Vox amps. The Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Yardbirds, and dozens of others all play their guitars through Vox product. Later, groups like Queen, Dire Straits, Echo and the Bunnymen, R.E.M., Tom Petty, Blink-182, Oasis, Muse, U2, Foo Fighters, Kurt Cobain, Slash, Arctic Monkeys, Radiohead, and many others would wail through Vox units. You cannot understate the impact Vox had on guitar rock through the decades. Kevin Parker of Tame Impala uses a Vox AC30 through some really strange combinations of effects pedals together with a variety of guitars including a Fender Strat, a Rickenbacker 335, and a Les Paul model made by Epiphone. It's hard to tell exactly what he's playing through on this track because of all the studio processing, but it's a good bet that when he plays it live, it's his Vox AC30 providing the noise. The other amplifier manufacturer to boost the fortunes of the electric guitar in the 1960s was Marshall. In the middle 60s, electric guitars became a symbol of rebellion and power, and to achieve maximum effect, it had to be played loud. And I mean really, really loud. But the amplifiers of the day just didn't have the jam. And that was solved by a British drummer and tap dancer named Jim Marshall. Starting with a shop in London that sold just drums in 1960, Jim added more musical instruments to his inventory. Because he was friends with Pete Townsend's father, who had been a professional dance band musician, Pete bought a lot of his guitars from Marshall's store. It was at Pete's insistence, backed up by a few more customers, that Jim started providing the London rock scene with proper amplification. Now, Jim didn't know anything about amps, but he thought he'd give it a try. The first was a 35-watt amp based largely on a Fender design that went on sale in 1962. And it was okay. But then Jim and his partners had an idea. What if we separated the amplifier from the speakers, housed them in two separate units? The result was an enclosure featuring all the electronics called the head and a second enclosure with four 12-inch speakers. The head could pump out up to 100 watts, far more than anything else available. 
And unlike all the other amps on the market that promise clear, distortion-free sound, Marshalls were designed specifically for distortion. Its circuitry and use of vacuum tubes were unique, resulting in a signature sort of sound. This was the Marshall Stack, officially known as the Marshall Super Lead Model 1959. It is the basis for all the walls of Marshall amps and cabinets that we see today, either with a half-stack design with one speaker cabinet or a full stack with a head unit driving two cabinets. This is by far the most iconic of all amp setups for guitars who want volume and power and distortion. It's not overstretching it to say that next to the electric guitar itself, Marshall amps and cabinets are the thing that contributed to rock and roll the most. Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day uses various combinations of Marshall Super Lead heads and cabinets, and that's what we hear on this track. It's worth mentioning one more amp maker from the 1960s, and that's Hiwat, another British firm. This one founded by an electronic engineer named Dave Reeves. The best thing that ever happened to him was being laid off in 1966. With the severance money, he moved from repairing electronics to making them. At first, he sold directly to musicians, promising them plenty of volume. He called his amps Hiwat because, well, they had a lot of watts. And while Marshall pumped out 100 watts, High watts were rated at 200, then 400. Pete Townsend defected from Marshall to High Watt for this very reason. Pink Floyd, the Moody Blues, Fleetwood Mac, Genesis, Hart, and Jethro Tull were just some of the bands to follow. The upshot is that between High Watt, Marshall, and Vox, we have the modern guitar amp and that lovely, powerful sound. Here's an example from Oasis. Back with more of the history of the electric guitar, with the story of how the mid-60s were both a boon and a bust for musicians. Hang tight. In the middle 1960s, demand for electric guitars went through the roof, with Fender, Gibson, Rickenbacker, and Gretsch scrambling to make as many guitars as they could. It seemed like every kid wanted to be a guitar hero. There were, however, some problems. The first was with Gibson and the Les Paul Standard. Remember that I mentioned in a previous episode that the model was introduced in 1958, but then discontinued in 1960. The guitars made during this roughly three-year period are considered to be among the finest electric guitars ever made. If you have, say, a 1958 Les Paul Standard Sunburst, you have one of the most coveted axes of all time. They are extremely rare and extremely expensive today. In the middle 60s, there was a resurgence in the interest in the standard, so Gibson started making them again in 1968. They were okay, but somehow weren't as good as those produced between 1958 and 1960. Then Gibson was sold in 1969, and the new owners implemented a series of changes in the way guitars were constructed and manufactured. These are the Les Pauls that you can buy today. In that interim, though, 1961 through to 1968, Gibson almost missed out on the rock and roll revolution. So let's go to that sale in 1969. The buyer was a beer and cement conglomerate out of Ecuador. 
And for the next 17 years, Gibson guitars went through a really rough patch with unpopular models and serious quality control problems. A bigger problem was with Fender. Leo Fender, the company's founder, was tired and suffering from ill health. So in 1965, he sold the company to CBS, yes, the broadcasting company, for $13 million. Originally, this was thought to be a good idea because CBS had lots of money. And why wouldn't they invest some of that into their new guitar division? Well, unfortunately, the opposite happened. Cost-cutting measures were put in place. And yes, some new models were introduced, but the company leading Stratocasters and Telecasters just didn't have the same build quality. For example, instead of using four bolts to hold the neck to the body, they used just three. The lacquers used for finishing the guitars changed, making them look shabby. Cheaper woods were used for both the body and the neck. More plastic was used, as well as thinner metal in place of pressed steel. The instruments gained a really bad rep, with serious players shunning fenders made after 1965. These changes at Gibson and Fender gave birth to the vintage guitar market. Serious musicians wanted their 58 to 60 Les Pauls and, and Strats and Tellys from before 1965. Let's hear something from Radiohead. Johnny Greenwood is a huge fan of his Telecaster Plus with its maple neck and sunburst finish. I'm not sure when it was manufactured, but it does sound cool. But I'm a- While both Gibson and Fender were having their issues in the mid-60s, and while all manufacturers were having trouble meeting demand, the market was flooded with cheap imports from places like Germany, Sweden, Italy, and especially Japan, which at one point was cranking out nearly a million cheap guitars a year, exporting about 80% of them. These were starter instruments that were sold mostly through department stores instead of specialty retailers. They had names like Del Rey, Kent, and Hagstrom. American companies got into the act, too. Harmony, National, K, and Airline were just some of them. And none were really up to the same quality as what you could buy from the big manufacturers. But this flood of cheap guitars turned out to be a very, very good thing. These instruments became the bedrock of a million garage bands that formed throughout the rest of the decade and into the 1970s. Yes, some beginners got better and eventually traded up to better instruments when their playing or financial situation improved. Others found these guitars charming and stuck with them. Jack White, for example. One of his absolute favorite guitars remains his Red Airline. The name of the model is the Rezo Glass. It was built by a company called Valco and was made of fiberglass, a then state-of-the-art material which allowed for non-traditional body shapes. It had a short neck, too, with only 20 frets. Jack's guitar dates back to 1964, This guitar was only available at Montgomery Ward department stores and sold for the princely sum of $99. In other words, not a great pedigree. But boy, did Jack get a lot of mileage from it. And it's what we hear on every single White Stripes album. By the way, if you want to get a vintage Red Montgomery Ward airline guitar today, expect to pay somewhere around $3,000. Again, this sold for $99 back in 1964. 
The other big department store brand was Silvertone, which were sold by Sears. These were made by a variety of companies for Sears. Harmony, K, Dan Electro, Valco, Tesco, and a few others. Thousands were sold through the Sears catalog. And one of the cost-saving things about the Silvertones is that each guitar case came with a built-in amp. So if you got one under the Christmas tree, you could fire it up right away. And because the neck had only 18 frets, a typical Silvertone guitar was light and easy for a young person to play. But they weren't just for beginners. Jimi Hendrix had one. So did Bob Dylan. And today, vintage Silvertones are highly collectible, especially those from the 1960s. Here's a Beck song featuring a Silvertone built by Harmony Guitars. It's the model 1448, one of the more popular ones. Just because a guitar is cheap or was originally sold at a bargain price, doesn't mean you can't get a great tone out of it. In a moment, we'll move through the 1970s and 80s when a whole new generation of guitarists and guitar makers appeared. For the first three decades of its existence, the best electric guitars were built by American companies. A few British ones snuck in, and then there were all the cheap imports that we just talked about. A lot of those cheapies came from Japan, but by the middle 1970s, the Japanese were making some pretty good stuff. Yamaha, ESP, and Ibanez began creating quality guitars. Gone were the goofy pickups and the warp necks and the poorly finished fretboards. These guitars were fine. Ibanez had its roots in a bookstore that opened in 1908. After factories were bombed out of existence during World War II, the company started from scratch. They also got into the import game in the 1960s, with their guitars having a higher level of quality than most of their competitors. The brand made its North American debut in 1972. And by 1980, they were ready to make a big move and hired Frank Zappa guitarist Steve Vai as an endorser. Ibanez went on a mission to secure the hard rock format. One guy who loves Ibanez is Dexter Holland of The Offspring. He's often seen playing an Ibanez RG570 USA Custom. He has at least two versions with slightly different finishes. If you check out the video for this song, you'll see him playing one with a chrome top. Another very important part of electric guitar history was the rise of music videos in the 1980s. After MTV started broadcasting on August 1st, 1981, everyone could see what instruments their heroes were playing. Not only that, but guitarists wanted to stand out. And this led to an era of wild and crazy guitar design. One of the best was a company called BC Rich. I mean, <laughs> wow. These things look more like medieval weapons than guitars, especially their Warlock line of instruments. If Fender's Flying V from 1958 looked strange, BC Rich took things about 20 steps further. If you were in a hair metal band, this is exactly the kind of outrageous guitar you wanted for your MTV video. There was the Warlock, the Very Pointy Seagull, the Stealth, the Eagle, the Mockingbird, and the Bitch. All of them were made completely of acrylic which is why they can assume such wild shapes. If you remember the movie Spinal Tap, Derek Smalls, the character played by Harry Shearer, plays a BC Rich. So did Spinal Tap guitarist David St. Hubbins. Other BC Rich players include Prince, Eric Clapton, Slash, 
Geezer and Tony from Black Sabbath, any number of Kiss guitarists, including Paul Stanley. James Hetfield of Metallica has used one. And I'm pretty sure we hear Dave Navarro playing an Ibanez custom on this song. There are so many more guitar brands that we can talk about. Charvel, PRS, ESP, Ernie Ball, Guild, and so on. And each manufacturer has many different models. Heck, we barely scratched the surface of all the different models by Fender over the years. All of them have their fans. All of them have their detractors. It all comes down to personal preference and the kinds of tones you want to get out of them. Now, where are we today? Well, for a while, it looked like the era of the electric guitar had ended. In the first decade and a half of the 21st century, electric guitar sales slid as young people gravitated more towards making music electronically, using devices that didn't take years of practice to master. The market was being held up by older white guys who had the wherewithal to indulge in their guitar hobbies and obsessions. So in other words, the customer base was aging and shrinking. Sales of electric guitars dropped by a third in the United States. Part of the issue might have been a lack of any new young guitar heroes who will inspire other young people to head to the music store. But there is good news, however. Sales of guitars are up in Asia. And in an interesting pandemic twist, many people took up the guitar while they were stuck at home. And finally, I've seen stats saying that an increasing number of young women are taking up the instrument. Look, trends come and go in popular music. The electric guitar was the thing in the 1960s and 70s before synthesizers and other electronics came to the fore in the 1980s. But then along came grunge and the alternative revolution in the 1990s. What did you have? Lots of guitars. Then the 21st century began with the indie revival with dozens and dozens of guitar-based bands, many choosing to use cheap instruments as part of their anti-establishment image. They wouldn't be caught dead playing, let's say, a vintage Les Paul. Think White Stripes, and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, and The Strokes, and The Black Keys. And while you can find all sorts of synthesized sounds, there's nothing like the immediacy, the power, and the human touch of the electric guitar. As long as there's electricity, there will be an electric guitar. I hope you enjoyed this historical overview of the electric guitar. This is a huge subject, something that could take many, many, many more programs. And there are so many rat holes we could go down. Amplifiers, foot pedals and outboard effects, signature guitars, the individual contributions by people like Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck and Pete Townsend and Eddie Van Halen and dozens of others. And we could do a whole show, maybe two, on the use of guitar distortion and how that's affected rock music over the decades. It's a fascinating area of music history. All ongoing history programs are available as podcasts. For example, if you missed parts one and two of our history of the electric guitar, you can get caught up by simply going to your podcast platform of choice and binging away. If you've got some feedback, let me know about it through alan at alancross.ca. We can also meet up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you can, visit my website for daily music news and information. It's a journalofmusicalthings.com. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.